Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I hope you're ready to worship the Lord today and and you're glad to be here with the body of Christ, right? Amen. Amen. That's some amens, right? I would like for you to take your Bible and go with me to Psalm 145. We want to read this psalm. One of the things that you saw in that video is you know, just the responsibility we have to declare the works of God, you know, to pass that down from one generation to another. And it got me to thinking about, I was telling them in the last service that, you know, what did I pass down to my children about the things of God, right? And now that I have grandchildren, I'm thinking about how are we investing in our children and grandchildren, passing down to them God's word and the, the mighty acts of the Lord. You know, we hear a lot of of the, the stories of Scripture, and, and we can't talk about them enough, right? How do you talk about the parting of the Red Sea enough? You can't. I mean, how do you talk about, in the Scriptures and the Gospels, all the miracles of Christ? I mean, that's the one that, that we serve and that we love and who saved us. I mean, there's just so much as believers to be thankful for and to pass down to our children and grandchildren. We don't want them to be unfamiliar with the God that we serve. We want them to know him full well. And so I want you to just think about that as we read through this psalm. I'd like you to stand as we read Psalm 145 together. The psalmist writes, I will extol you, my God, O King. That word extol means to praise enthusiastically. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another. That's an expectation there. And shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. And will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow and to anger and great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. And the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. The psalmist says your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall. And raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, the Lord is gracious, not just to the believer, but to the unbeliever. 
even though they may not recognize it. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth, David says, will speak the praise of the Lord. And all flesh will bless his holy name forever and forever. And one day, the Bible says to us, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of his glory. And I hope right now you're doing that, that you're bowing the knee to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for another day of life, for the opportunity to be able to worship you and to praise you, for you truly are great. There is no one like you, Lord. Thank you for the great privilege we have this morning to be able to gather together, to be able to worship you, as your word says, in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray if there's one in this room that does not have a relationship with you, that today, today could be the day of salvation. And I just thank you so much for all who are here. For those that couldn't be with us today, we pray for them and for their needs. Lord, we pray that um, you would be merciful, and that they would know your strength and your comfort. May this service glorify you in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Morning, church. Um, our confidence, our hope this morning is not in anything man-made, right? No ideologies, no wisdom, no plans that man has set forth. It's in a God who is able, who's defeated death, and it's in his name, in his name only, that we overcome the trials and things that we face in life. That's what we want to sing about this morning. So y'all worship together with us.
is on our side. He will make a way. Far above all we know, far above all we hope, He has done great things. Lifted up, it defeated the grave. Raised to Nothing speaks to us more than the cross, right? That's the one that means the most to us as believers. And it's because of the cross um, that we can sing songs like these next two or three, which talk about uh, the fact that we can have peace, that we bless the name of the Lord, even when times are tough. So let's sing these. It is well. 
Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. The world's all as it 
ever um, been driving down the road and hit a pothole? Have you ever been on a road that had many potholes and they were hard to avoid? Have you been down a road you're so familiar with that you've learned to elude those potholes? To go around them so that your car is potentially not destroyed. 
had one particular pothole on Careway, close to where we used to live. And bless the heart of those guys who were supposed to come out and fix it, but they never seemed to show up at the right times. And I hit that thing by accident. Because I knew exactly where it was, and I was just driving. It was one of those times I was just tired, and I was like, I'm just driving, and bam! This jolted me. Well, this is going to sound strange to you, but as we're going through this book of 2 Timothy, we come upon a responsibility that Paul gives Timothy to elude the potholes. To dodge those who are promoting a false narrative. And it seemed to be happening in the church at Ephesus. And it's going to be difficult for all of us to kind of process the importance, I think, of what Paul is saying to Timothy in this section. And I hope that you will give me just a few moments to be able to go through this and show you the importance of avoiding what Paul calls here worldly and empty chatter. We expect worldly and empty chatter outside of the church, but we don't expect it inside of the church. And yet I think you're going to find that it happens in both arenas. It happens outside the church, and then it is brought inside the church, and it continues to spread, which can be very destructive to the body of Christ. I want to just read one verse of Scripture, actually two verses of Scripture, that might help you to decide that you need to hang in there today. Because this is one of those sections where you might say, hey, this is good for you to study, and this is good for you to know, but why in the world do I need to know it? And yet, it's very critical that all of us are able to, remember last week we said, cut straight the Word of God. And so, I want you to listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. You don't need to look it up. It's in chapter 5. It's verses 21 and 22. Listen to what Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. The difference is he's writing to the church versus writing to an individual in Timothy. So in writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, But examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's the responsibility of the church. So when we come to 2 Timothy, although he's addressing an individual, it's paramount that you and I engage in what Paul is saying to Timothy so that we're able to accurately and rightly cut straight the word of God. And I will warn you that this is a difficult section. One of the issues that's going to come up for you in your thinking is, were Hymenaeus and Philetus believers, or were they not? There is quite a bit of discussion around that. Were these men that were just 
going astray in terms of this doctrine that they were propagating, which was a denial of a future bodily resurrection for the believer. Now, you and I can all agree that's a big deal. <laughs> but there are other big deals that go on in churches today in which we stand back and we look across the aisle and we say, I wonder if these people are believers because they're propagating the doctrine as it relates to salvation that the believer is not secure in Christ. And you and I both know people who would say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I believe in the gospel of Christ. He is the one that saved me. But they believe they can lose their salvation. You run across people like that before? Who haven't been necessarily properly discipled as it relates to that particular aspect of salvation. They're confused. This is what tends to happen. We step back and we look down and we say, well, they can't be believers. Question. Who knows those that belong to the Lord? Verse 19 of this chapter, he reminds Timothy in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2, he says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. So I'm just warning you as you go through this section that you're going to wrestle with, did they belong to the Lord or not? Because they seem to be off in a major area, and they are. But we know that people can be off in areas as it relates to the doctrine of Scripture. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said that putting together a doctrinal statement for a church, an individual church, is one of the hardest things that you do. <laughs> and it is. Because what do you want among the members of the body? Agreement. And sometimes there's disagreement. I know that's hard for you to believe, but it happens. So as we come to this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul talks about the fourth responsibility that he had handed down to Timothy as a minister of the gospel of Christ. And we begin together in verse 16. And from verse 16, he gives us the responsibility, or Timothy, the responsibility to steer clear. That's the responsibility he gives him. And the question becomes, to steer clear of what? So let's look at it together. Look at verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, but avoid, steer clear, elude, stay away from worldly and empty chatter. My friends, listen to me. There is worldly and empty chatter that goes on outside the church. And believe it or not, there is worldly and empty chatter that goes on inside the church. That's why we have to be discerning as believers. We have to check out everything. We have to be like the Berean church. You remember the Bible tells us in Acts 17 that the Bereans did what? They examined carefully everything that was being said. All of us have that responsibility. 
because we run across at times outside of the church and inside of the church what would be called false and fruitless chatter or discussion. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey, avoid it. Stay away from it. And what we're going to see in this particular section is that Hymenaeus and Philetus were influenced by the Greeks of the day and their philosophy as it related to the body and to the soul. In fact, you have a quote in there that we'll refer to later that will help you to understand what was going on here with these men. So he says in verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter. And then he tells them why. Why were they, why was he to avoid this? Why are we to avoid it? Now, I want you to understand something, that the world can influence the church. Do you agree with that statement? Do you agree with the statement that the world has influenced the church? And even influenced the church in areas of doctrine. We have to be careful of that. So he says... Avoid worldly and empty chatter, and he tells them why. Because, you might have the word for in your translation, I have for in mine. It simply means because it will lead to further ungodliness. That word ungodliness has the idea of disregarding the, the things of the Lord. You say, well now, believers don't disregard the things of the Lord. At times we do, don't we? Let's be honest. We expect it from the world. But he says, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Now what's interesting in the phrase is the, the two words will lead. It's a picture here in the original language in the Greek. And when I was studying it, I was like, man, this is incredible. Because you have this worldly and empty chattering going on. And Paul tells Timothy, avoid it. Because, number one, it will lead to further ungodliness. The picture there of will lead is of men chopping down trees. Isn't that interesting? I bet you would have never guessed that. It is of men chopping down trees in order to advance or move forward. You say, in order to advance and move forward with what? With a message. There are people within the church that chop down trees to advance the message of health, wealth, and prosperity theology. Who chop down the trees to advance the message that you are not secure in Christ, that you can lose your salvation. You say, Thad, does that happen to believers? It does. It does. I've had many friends over the years whose testimony was of Christ and the gospel of Christ, clear as the day is long, who are attending churches that do not align with eternal security. In fact, I had a man years ago that came into my office one day, a man who gave his life to the Lord in missions, and he walked in my office and and he sat in there and he said, Thad, I've come to this conclusion that you can lose your salvation. 
I said, well, who gave it to you? He said, well, the Lord did. And then he took me to a passage of Scripture, and we sat there and we talked. The problem with the conversation was that he took it out of context. And so when I was trying to explain that to him, guess what happened? We went nowhere in the discussion. He had been influenced by chatter from outside and inside the church. Paul says, listen, you have to avoid the worldly and empty chatter because it will advance. It will advance and it will lead to further ungodliness. Notice the second picture he gives here. And their talk will spread like gangrene. That's disgusting, by the way. I gave you a definition, I think, there from the Holman Bible Dictionary in your notes. But I wanted to read to you an explanation of what gangrene is according to a medical lexicon that I ran across. This is how it's described. Gangrene is a condition that leads to the death of living tissue. It is caused by blocked blood flow or by, by bacterial infection. Gangrene most often affects the legs, feet, arms, and fingers, but it can also affect internal organs to the point where it costs the person their life. One theologian described it like this. The bad cells are affecting the good cells. Does that happen in the context of the church? It does. It does. Did you know that the biggest killer in the Civil War was not instant death by bullet or by cannonball? It was disease. In fact, it's, there's estimated that over 385,000 men died from wounds and other illnesses including gangrene. So, Paul likens their talk to gangrene. It's spreading. It's doing harm. And it's doing harm to the point where, with gangrene, a leg might have to be chopped off. You say, that's a brutal picture. Yes, it is. Do you know that there are times when it is appropriate Within the body of Christ, when false doctrine is being propagated, the shepherds have to come along and correct the error. You say, that sounds harsh. Well, the Lord wants us to protect His what? His word, His truth. And I know in my Bible, as it relates to the one specific issue, the issue of the security of the believer in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4... The Bible says, I have been sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. So, I am going to believe that. That I've been sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. So, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that a false narrative is destructive. It eats away. The bad eats away at the good. Inside the church, it can happen. That's why, guys, think about it. That's why 
chapter 2, verse 15 in context just makes so much more sense. Instead of pulling it out and saying, well, studies show thyself approved unto God a workman that need not be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. But when you put it in the context, you're going, whoa. Because there are false narratives out there that impact the church. And so we have to be careful with God's word. We have to be like the Bereans and examine it carefully. It's interesting in this particular passage that Paul is willing to call out two by name. What if we had a service where we called out people by name? How comfortable would you be with that? You know, for some reason, people get uncomfortable with that, don't they? At the end of the day, the Lord knows those that belong to him, but when it's clear that there is a message that is contrary to the truth of Scripture, it has to be discussed amongst believers. Otherwise, you know what happens? The bad cells are going to eat away at you. And so Paul calls out these two guys. <laughs> How would you like to have your name in the Word of God in this? It says, among them, so he gives an example, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. Now it's very important to note that Paul does not list doctrines plural, but one. One doctrine. They were in error in one specific place. And he calls it out. A very important error and one that had to be dealt with. And so he deals with them. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. And this is what they were saying. This was their message. They were saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. You say, what in the world are, were they doing? What, what's he talking about? Well, in your notes, I want you to look down in your notes. John Walvard comments on this passage about the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, these two had wandered away from the truth. And he's specific about it. He says, the heresy of Philetus and Hymenaeus involving promoting the idea, involved, excuse me, promoting the idea that the resurrection was merely a spiritual one, taking place at salvation when the believer identifies spiritually with Christ's death and resurrection. Do we believe in a spiritual renewal? Answer? Okay, good. I'm, I was worried there for a second. Yes, we do. We believe in the renewal of the believer, the spiritual renewal at regeneration. We believe that. He goes on to say, this teaching reflected, now look at this, the Greek philosopher's view. Where is that? Inside the church or outside the church? It's outside the church. But it had, it had come to take residence inside the church. The Greek philosopher's view that the soul was immortal and the body is its temporal prison. The idea of the physical resurrection of the body, both Christ and the Christians, and Christians, excuse me, was therefore foreign and difficult for them to grasp why because they had been influenced by who 
People within or people without? People without. He says, Paul believed in the spiritual resurrection, the act by which, whereby God, excuse me, imparts new life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. But also, the apostle Paul taught the bodily resurrection of the believer, that it was a future event. Amen? It's interesting when you look at the way that Paul deals with this and calling out these two. One of the questions that might come to your mind, and I'm sure is, because it came to mind, and I, as I was doing my verification step, I'm like, what are these other guys thinking? Man, everybody's got different viewpoints. And that's when you close your book and you go, ah! Because we don't know about Hymenaeus and Philetus in terms of knowing the Lord. It's interesting to me that Paul doesn't say they denied the resurrection of Christ. I just have to say that. Okay? But in denying a future bodily resurrection, that was a problem. Because who is the first fruits of that? Christ is. Another issue, specifically with Hymenaeus, that, that brings up questions comes to us in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So please turn back there if you would like to follow me in this discussion as it relates to Hymenaeus. Paul had already talked about this man. Verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So you look at that and go, oh, hold on a second now. Shipwreck? A believer? Shipwrecked? Yeah, it can happen. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That word blaspheme there means this. It's contrary to the teachings of Scripture. That's the idea in the context. Well, to deny a future bodily resurrection is to deny what? The teachings of Scripture. And ten years earlier than the letter to 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And you know what's interesting in this text? In 1 Corinthians, they're dealing with the same issue. Now, I want you to, to see with me, before we go to that, in verse 20 of 1 Timothy 1, it says that Paul did what? He handed over... Hymenaeus and Alexander to who? To Satan. When there is church discipline, what happens? The person, right, is excommunicated from the church. They are no longer underneath the umbrella of the church, the protection that God provides. Now, you don't find too many churches going through an excommunication process, do you? But apparently, Paul had already dealt with Hymenaeus, but he was back and influencing. 
It's an interesting concept that is clear in Scripture. That there are times that you have to hand over those who are professing believers to Satan. And that's what takes place here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But that's not unusual. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians. You don't need to stay there because we'll come to this other section that identifies the problem that was going on in the Corinthian church. But if it troubles you that Paul handed over these two to Satan in order to be taught not to blaspheme, there's another passage of Scripture that talks about this very same thing, just in a different context. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Who is you? You can say it with some confidence. It's the church. And immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. That's pretty rough, right? That someone has his father's wife. Now, how did the church respond? Verse 2, it says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So they weren't dealing with the problem. You say, well, that doesn't happen in the church. All churches deal with problems. Wrong. They weren't dealing with it. Paul is scolding these guys. He says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In other words, he's saying, Look, you haven't handled it, I'm going to handle it. In the name of our Lord Jesus, I love the way Paul phrases that. So it's not him. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what was the purpose in handing over Alexander and Hymenaeus? So their spirit would be saved. Whether they were saved or not, we don't know. In this context, Paul is talking about one here who was in the body, who was in sin, and he was disciplining this person and encouraging this church to do the same. You say, well, what happened to this person? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells you that. This person was restored to the body of Christ. And do you know what Paul tells the church in Corinth to do in this restoration? He gives a picture. You walk beside that person. You know, we have a tendency to do when we see correction going on inside the body. We, we, we tend to, the temptation is to, man, I'm staying away from that person. That's not what the Lord did. He goes after his sheep. And we do it in the spirit of love. So it's not an isolated incident that one is handed over to Satan for judgment. It's interesting, too, that in the context of 2 Timothy, 
as we're dealing with this particular issue as it relates to Hymenaeus and Philetus denying the future bodily resurrection of the believer, that it's not the only time in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to look at this. 1 Corinthians 15. You know, one of the things that happens when people come to the book of 1 Corinthians, they go, uh, is Paul writing to believers? What's the answer to that? Yes. You say, yeah, but look at all the things they had going on. There's a lot of things going on in God's church today. In God's church today, among professing believers, there is pressure to accept abortion as okay. True? There is pressure to be culturally relevant and say, well, marriage doesn't just include a man and a woman. It can include a woman and a woman or a man and a man. But if we just go by what the Bible says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Might I encourage us to do something? That when we hear people say, hey, these two ladies got married. No, they didn't. These two men got married. No, they didn't. Not according to my Bible. My Bible says it's one man and one woman. How did the church get so far away from that message? The answer is right in this text in 2 Timothy. They started listening to the chatter. And you know what? Some of them bought in and like, hey, we need to catch up. I had a man one time, I was reading my Bible in my vehicle. I'll never forget this. I was reading my Bible. It was on the front seat. I was taking one of my boys to baseball practice. And I had it out and I'm reading through it. And he puts his head in the window and he says, hey, Thad. Do you believe all that? I'm like, every word of it. Do you? These guys were wreaking havoc in the church. Let's not play that down. In fact, Paul's going to tell us that. But notice that within the church, this was not the first time that Paul had addressed this. He had addressed it 10 years earlier. Notice verse 12 of chapter 15. This is the great resurrection chapter. <laughs> In fact, guys, this is just how it is. The, the hope that we have that Christ is alive, meaning he is. And the hope that we have that the dead will be raised, that are in Christ, to forever be with Christ. Does that sound good to you? A new body? A glorified body? As you get older, you're more and more for that. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 15, Now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you, who's the you? Church. Say there is no resurrection of the dead. Whoa. Well, that's a problem. Is it not? It is a problem. 
I mean, the hope, right? I mean, think about it. Hymenaeus and Philetus are beating down the hope of the future bodily resurrection of the believer. And apparently, Hymenaeus was willing to mow down trees and continue his message. Because not only does Paul deal with him in 1 Timothy, but 2. But now notice what Paul says in building this argument. He says, now if Christ has preached that he, is not, that he has been raised from the dead, so he is being, it is being preached that he is alive, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and he talks about the bodily resurrection beginning in verse 20. But he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Whoa, that's a problem. You say, well, how do they deal with that? He already dealt with it. Back up in the previous verses, in talking about the appearances of the Lord after his death, burial, and resurrection. It says in verse 5 that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than how many? 500. That's great. <laughs> right? And if you're one of those he appeared to, you're like, whoa! And remember the doubt in the minds, by the way, of all the disciples, not just Thomas, of all of them. It's always been taught that Poor doubting Thomas. Well, they all had issues about it. Thomas is the one that we run into because he wasn't present at the first time the Lord appeared. But the Bible says to us in the previous verses in this chapter that indeed the Lord rose and he had a glorified body. Have you read about the post-resurrection appearances of Christ? Now, I have not seen a glorified body. Have you? No, it's still a mystery. But what we do have, post-resurrection, are several occurrences where Christ appears with his disciples. Walls don't seem to be a problem with a glorified body. But you know what I'm encouraged by? You know what the Lord was doing on the beach when his disciples were out? Fixing food. That's a good thing, right? All God's people said amen. We know we, know we at least are going to eat one time, for sure, at the marriage feast. So it's clear that there's a problem here if one denies the resurrection of the believer. Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, he says not even Christ has been raised. Then verse 14 says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. Hey guys, you know why you're here today? I think. You believe he's alive. And you believe he's one day he's coming for the church. And you believe that we are instantly going to be changed. Like in the twinkling of an eye. Changed. Hallelujah. No more headaches. Imagine that. No more stomach aches. That's what I deal with the most. No more stomach aches. No more heartbreaks. We're going to forever be in the presence of the Lord. That's what we celebrated yesterday with Brenda.
He says, our preaching is in vain, but it's not. By the way, if you're teaching children, you can't go over enough the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ has not been raised, and our preaching is vain. If you, notice, he, notice he changes pronouns. I thought this was interesting. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our, our preaching is in vain. He knew that it wasn't. But he's building this argument. He says, your faith also is in vain. Notice he says, our, he doesn't say our faith. He knew his faith wasn't useless. <laughs> Moreover, he says, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Listen, at salvation... Right? We are raised spiritually. But one day, listen to me, one day, the dead in Christ, as Paul writes in, in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to forever be with the Lord. And we'll have this glorified body, which he describes in verses 20 through Basically, 49. You can go home and read that this afternoon. That'll give you something to do. He says, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's already said it once. He says it, says it again. Notice verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Jesus. You're still... This is awful. You're still in your sins. If Christ is not alive, think about this. If Christ is not alive, we're, we're still in our sins. There's no hope. The payment has not been made. <laughs> but it's been made. Hallelujah. We've been bought with a price. That's what Peter tells us. Verse 18, look at this. Then those who have fallen asleep and Christ have perished. Whoa. Hold on a second. Guys, do you see the seriousness of this? In other words, if there is no resurrection of Christ or no future resurrection of the believer, then when people fall asleep or die, it, that's it. We had a memorial service yesterday. How many of you believe that was it? Hey, look, the shell was there. The soul, Brenda, was where? Since Tuesday morning at 420. With the Lord. And I love the imaging of Scripture, the image of Scripture. We're transported immediately into His presence. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. One day you and I are going to have, if we're in Christ, a resurrected body. And notice what he says lastly. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Is that it? I mean, are you hoping in Christ just in this life? You know, Paul had a testimony that was way different. You want to hear his testimony? It makes a lot more sense when you consider what he's writing here. 
when he wrote to the Philippian believers in Philippi, he wrote this, for to who, to me, to live is what? Christ. Yes. And all who are in Christ this morning go, that's right. And then he says something that the world would go, what in the world? To die is what? To die is gain. Why is death gain? It's the presence of Christ. Can you imagine? Face to face in all his glory for eternity. Well, we're almost done. Back to 2 Timothy. So they were causing havoc in the church. I think... Letter D there tells you the ripple effects of a false message. I summed it up this way. It was damaging believers. Notice what it says in verse 18. Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And as a result, what does the Bible say? They upset the faith of all. Is that what it says? No. It says they upset the faith of some. How grounded do we need to be in the doctrines of Scripture, class? Very grounded. How many times has someone said something to you, and you're like, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what the Bible says. If this is what the Bible says, I'm discouraged. Has that ever happened to you? Where somebody's walked up to you and said, I know this to be a fact, but in the reality, you're thinking back over the years of, of being under people and their teach, biblical teaching, and you're going, that's not right. We know this by, about the Spirit of God, and it's what Jesus told his disciples. The Spirit of God will lead us and guide us into what? All the truth. All the truth. But what Hymenaeus and Philetus were doing, they were upsetting the faith of some. Isn't it interesting the way that word is used in the Scriptures? It's used in Luke 2.15 when the Lord overturned the tables in the temple. Hey, that's what happens. When you have people propagating, hey, you can lose your salvation, it upsets people. You say, not if they're grounded. But what's the issue? Not if they're grounded. That's why discipleship is so critical. You know, you know why it's important to disciple your children? Because they're going to hear messages outside of biblical creation. Do you know that? They're going to sit in college universities... And professors are going to tell them, hey, listen, it's all about evolution. And they're going to propagate that message. And if your children have not heard from you about what God says, do you know they can be confused? One of the greatest gifts I was ever given was by my father and my mother. And it wasn't an option. You know how it goes when you're a teenager. 17 years old, and my dad looked at me and he said, Son, you're going to Bible college for a year. I'm like, I'm doing what? Man, I already had plans. I'm going to LSU. That's where I want to go. Go Bengal Tigers. That's where I want to be. And they said, Hey, we want you to go to Bible college for a year. Just a year. But you know the reason for it? 
I'll never forget it. He said, Dad, we want you to be grounded in your faith. And you know what happened? You know the rest of the story? I never went. Well, I've been to Baton Rouge and I've been to LSU. Beautiful place. Great food. But I didn't end up going to LSU. I went to Southeastern Bible College for one year. And I met Teresa. And if I'm honest, I went back the second year for Teresa. And to play basketball. And then the Lord took me through a journey and a path that I didn't expect. And in the spring of 1985, I went back to Southeastern for the right reasons. And I sat under men like Dr. Hugh Hughley and George Morange and Dr. Talley and Dr. Gannett. I'm talking about great teachers. And you know what they all had in common? They cut it straight. I can't ever thank them enough for that. But that started with my dad saying, hey, look, you need to be grounded in the faith. And so do all of us. All of us need to be grounded in the faith. Well, we look at this passage and we question about, our question about Hymenaeus and Philetus is, did they belong to the Lord or not? I think there's something bigger than that for us to consider, not that their faith in Christ is not important. But I think it's the message that Paul gives to Timothy. You avoid that chatter that's going to lead you down wrong roads doctrinally. And notice verse 19. At the end of verse 18, he says, what's taking place is upsetting the faith of some, nevertheless... No matter. The firm foundation of God stands. Now there's some discussion about what he's talking about in terms of the firm foundation. Theologians kind of wrestle with it. Is it Christ or the church? Well, both are firm foundations, correct? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We know the foundation of Christ. So he says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal... The Lord knows those who are His. You know what the tendency in the church is? I mean, there is a tendency to this. We look at people and we look at their lives. And, you know, if your life is like their life and your life is like my life, we want to represent those of us who are in Christ. We want to represent the Lord well, don't we? But how many of you have at times not represented Him well? My hands are up. And so we stand back and we go, well, that person's not representing Christ. Well, they say they're a believer, so they must not be a believer. Time out. Who's the one that knows? And the only one that knows? The Lord. In fact, John chapter 5 says, all judgment's been given to who? The Son. Christ. You say, well, hold on a second, Thad. And we got to do something about this. That's a problem. I agree with you. It is a problem. When we find somebody not living like they need to be, who are professing Christ, you know what we do? Share the gospel with them. You say, Dad, that's going to be offensive. <laughs> okay. The gospel is what? It's offensive. So we share the gospel. 
You say, well, is there precedence for that in Scripture? Uh-huh. The book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and what's he doing? Sharing the gospel. What's he do with the Corinthian church? Shares the gospel. Look through the letters. Paul's sharing the gospel with the church. Because at the end of the day, the Lord knows those that belong to him. And notice the way he ends this section. And everyone who names the name of the Lord. Now this is very serious. Would you be willing to stand today and say, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to do that? I name the name of Christ. He is my Lord and my God. Would you say that? You know what he tells us to do? Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to stay away, to abstain from what? Wickedness. You know, guys, when I was looking at this, I was like, man, one of the questions that just has to be asked is, are we vulnerable to a false narrative, to false teaching? It's a question. Are we? I believe we are. You say, Thad, but we got some guys in this room that have been studying the Word since they were 10, 12. They've been professors and teachers and pastors. But I would say to you, all of us are vulnerable to a false narrative if these things aren't taking place. If we are not regularly engaged in reading and studying the Word, one might say, well, that's your job. I'm not alone. What are you supposed to be doing? Checking it out. I'll never forget a pastor friend of mine. I didn't tell this story for a service. Pastor friend of mine, he says, Dad, I got a guy in my congregation who was a Greek teacher in a seminary. I'm like, I can do better than that. I got my professor sitting in here. We have to be checked out. No one's perfect. My intention is to cut it straight. Am I always right? No. I'm a man. But my desire is to cut accurately the word of God. Because I have that responsibility. All of us have the responsibility to regularly engage the word of God. We'll be vulnerable if we don't do that. We'll be vulnerable if we do not regularly engage in ongoing discipleship. Ongoing. You know what's going to keep you accountable most in your life? When you invest in another person. Because this is what you're saying. Hey, I'm going to check you out and I'm going to lead you down the right road. And make sure you're doing the things that scripture says. Who te- Listen, who learns more in that? Have you ever discipled someone? You as the one discipling learns the most. But the responsibility is for all of us in that area. So we're going to be vulnerable if we're not involved regularly. And then one more thing. If we're not involved regularly in an assembly, with an assembly of believers, we'll be vulnerable to worldly and empty chatter. That's the reality of it. 
And so we have to be very, very careful that we are committed to an assembly of believers that are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Over the years, I've attended several pastors' conferences. You know what one, one of the ongoing themes is? Discernment. Discernment. Let me ask you as a parent, how many of you dads here today have girls, right? The first time she brings home a dude, what are you doing? You are examining the dude, right? Is he worthy, first of all, to even come inside the door? And secondly, I don't have girls, but that would be my number one. Secondly, right, when they walk in the door, I'm immediately engaging them and examining them. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your faith. Right? It's the responsibility of the believer to examine and to hold fast to that which is good. And to stay away from that which is evil. I trust that the Lord will give all of us discernment as it relates to not only the study of God's word, but as we have opportunities to disciple and invest in others. Let's pray. Lord, this particular passage is pretty difficult. There's a lot of things here to consider, a lot of different viewpoints. We want to understand what your word says, Lord, and we want to follow it. Can I say thank you to know that your word teaches that there is a future bodily resurrection for the believer. It's not a message I came up with anyone in here and just looking at what Paul wrote 